0: Well good morning everyone. Welcome to Door Creek. If you're a guest here a special welcome to you. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team and we are in week seven of Romans, good news for all people. And we start at the very beginning. Paul declares the good news of God's love for us in Christ and throughout this letter he's going to challenge us and what that means for how we live for God in this world. Loving God with all of our heart, our neighbor as ourself. We've been reminded that the gospel that is offered to all people is offered because it's actually needed by all people. It's necessary for all of us. We've we've followed this downward spiral as he's kind of recounted human history and traced the outlines of our own human hearts that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That is, the glory of God is most perfectly revealed in Christ, and we do not live a life like Christ, who loved the Father perfectly, loved his neighbor, even his enemy, all the way to the end. And so it's offered to all because it's needed by all. And so no matter who we are, where we come from, Paul would say, whether you're on the Jewish side of the church or one of the others, a Gentile, We all stand before a holy God facing the fact that whether through ignorance or eyes wide open, we've broken the relationship with God, and we have cut ourselves off from the life that God has intended. And so in chapter 3, as he's been just talking about the predicament that they're in, he's anticipated this pushback from the Jews within the congregation. And remember, this would be house churches scattered around the city of Rome, 20 to 30 people, many of them from the Jewish side of the equation and others Gentiles or Greeks. And and the Jewish element was pushing back, very likely saying, but look, we're the chosen people and we have the law and we've been doing a good job trying to keep the law. And remember, we have the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And so you're telling us that these things don't make us right with God, keeping the law. And Paul's saying, no, they don't because the law does one fundamental thing after it reveals the character of God, after it instructs us how to love God and love our neighbor. It's this mirror that keeps showing us that we can't keep the law perfectly, that we're lawbreakers. And Paul's saying, that's right, that's what I'm saying. And so they're going, well then, so then how can we be made right with God? How can people who are sinners, who are trying hard to get right with God, how in the world then is it possible? And what Paul is saying is, there's got to be something outside of ourselves. And that's at the heart of the good news. That through the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. That the Old Testament prophets and scriptures have been pointing to nothing less than Jesus Christ. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, his powerful resurrection. That's the the righteousness that is ours by faith. It's a free gift received by faith. And so having made that point and driving it home, this free gift received by faith, he says here's some implications about that very core doctrine that a person is made right before a holy God, not through our good works, but through our faith in the good work of Christ. Three implications. Grab your Bible, and we'll pick up those implications at the end of chapter 3. So chapter three twenty-seven to the end here. So if you're new to the Bible, it's towards the back, after the book of Acts, before 1 Corinthians. Grab your table of contents if you're uh, not sure even where those books might be. So towards the back, chapter 3, verse 27. We're going to pick up from 27 and work our way all the way through the example of Abraham in chapter 4. So here's the implications. Basically what he's going to say, because we're saved by grace through faith, that means there's no room for spiritual pride and boasting. There's no room for any kind of elitist, judgmental, racist kind of notion that we're better than other people, and there's no room for thinking that if we're saved by grace through faith that the law is no longer in play and that we can just chuck it and say, good, we're free to live however we want to live now. So those are the implications. Hear them as I read them. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified. So, justified is this declaration by God whereby we are accepted by God. So, it's a legal declaration by God where we are found innocent before God through our faith in God's Son. So, we maintain that a person is justified, made right before God by faith. Apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, the Jews, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. All right, so... We're going to talk more about these things when we wrap up today's message. So let me just touch on those first two lightly. Because we're saved by grace through faith, Paul's saying this, there's no room for spiritual pride. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for having our ultimate confidence in the things that we're doing for God, even though they might be good things like trying to understand the law. And by the way, the law, when Paul's using it, could reference the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law could also be referencing all of the scriptures. It's great to know the scriptures. It's great to try and live by the principles and the commandments of scriptures. Nothing's wrong with that. Nothing wrong with prayer. Nothing wrong with serving the vulnerable and and taking care of the marginalized like the poor and the widows and the orphans and the sojourners in the land like immigrants and refugees. Nothing wrong with those things, but they in and of themselves are never a place for us to take pride in ourselves and thinking that we can have confidence in our relationship with God because of what we're doing for God. Because it's never been about what we're doing for God It's what he's done for us and our response to that And out of that life of faith We do move forward Not to earn his favor But because we have his favor So there's no room for boasting He's called them on their religious pride already Chapter 223 You boast in the law he says And there's things that we could be boasting in ourselves A right understanding of grace which talk to anybody from any other faith system. I don't care if they're Muslim. I don't care if they're Buddhist or whatever. They're not going to have this essential ingredient of grace. And when we understand grace, it moves us to live with humility because it's a gift from God, not something we earned from God. He says, also when we understand this doctrine that we're saved by God's grace through faith in his son and in Christ alone, then there's no room for this kind of exclusive, uh, arrogant, proud position that would say, I'm better, my people are better than the other people. That would have been an easy thing that could have been in play in the churches in Rome between the Jews and those who weren't of Jewish background. I mean, they were the chosen people. They had the scriptures. They were living or trying to live a moral life. It would have been easy for them to have this attitude of superiority. He says, none of that. The gospel is on faith by faith alone, by God's grace alone. And so that means God is the God of all people. If it was based on the law, then he'd only be the God of the Jews, but he's the God of all people. And so make sure that you see people as God sees people, created in his image. Psalm 8, crowned with honor and glory. No room for prejudicial thinking. No room for racist thoughts. No room for this elitist, egalitarian, where you and your people and your tribe are better than the others. Because remember that theme verse in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, because they received the message of the gospel and the promises of the gospel first, then to the Gentiles. Huge implications for the church 2,000 years ago. Huge implications for us today today. Finally, he says the third implication, there's no room for thinking, well, if we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then obviously that faith makes the law kind of, you know, it, it, it makes the law like it's, it's a non-factor. We don't need the law, we'll just toss it. It doesn't matter how we live our life because it's all grace, it's a free gift, and all I gotta do is trust in Christ and I can live like I want and I'm forgiven and I'm good before God. He says that couldn't be anything further from the truth. He says the very things that Jesus will say in Matthew 5, verse verse 17, when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I actually came to fulfill the law. The faith and law are not working against each other. It upholds the law. And so the law, yes, it reveals God's character. Yeah, it teaches us what it looks like to love God and to love our neighbor. Yes, it reveals our own heart. And so in that, the law tells us that we need a savior and it's faith in that savior that is the culmination of the law and Christ fulfills that law. Our faith in the law upholds it, doesn't nullify it, doesn't exclude it, but it upholds the law. And so they're working together, he says, and it's always been like that from the beginning. And so, he's going to put the linchpin argument that it's saved by faith, not works, by going back in their history to their version of our George Washington. He's going to hold up. All of chapter 4 is going to be about one guy named Abraham. So, Abraham and the story of Abraham is going to do two things in his argument. It's going to do the first is this. It's going to say, look, you guys, this isn't a new teaching. This is how our father Abraham was made right before God. It wasn't through his works. It wasn't because he got circumcised. It was through his faith. And so that's how it's always been. And that's how it is today, 2,000 years later. And what I'm giving you here in this gospel is not new. It's how it's always been. And then what he's going to do through the life of Abraham is going to hold him up as this just wonderful example of what this faith actually looks like, all right? So, some of us, we don't know who Abraham is, and so it's really important for me to just give you just a little review on the man Abraham, otherwise we're not going to understand where Paul's going here, or for, for some of us, just kind of a refresher. So Abraham is this unique guy in biblical history that God seeks out. And he finds him in this city called Ur. Ur is actually in modern day Iraq. What a great story. He finds an Iraqi who's in idol worship according to Joshua 24. He and all of his people worship a pantheon of gods. He's worshiping all these idols and God seeks him out and says, Abram, that was his name when we meet him in scriptures. God changes it to Abraham, but he says, Abram hey, I want you to follow me. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave everything that's comfortable in the life that you've made there with your wife and with your nephew and with your dad and all the people that are part of your clan. And I want you to leave it all and I want you to go to the land that I'm, I'm going to call you to, and I'll show you when you get there where the land is. And, and by the way, he didn't like pull out the travel brochures and say, look it, man, it's really cool. It's this promised land. It's flowing with milk and honey. Hey, Condé Nasty did an article last month on it. Let's Check out this article, National Traveler Geographic. They did an article on it. Man, it's cool. And I know you're a little freaked out and nervous, but I'm going to give you a military escort. It's all good. There was none of that. It was just simple. You go. When you get there, I'll tell you. And he goes. And he gets as far as a place called Haran. And it's in Haran where his dad dies, and he he just settles there in Haran, which wasn't the promised land. Like he's still in the region of his, his people and his culture. And so God meets him again, and this is what is recorded in Genesis 12. And, and he ups the ante, because we're not sure if he gave these same promises the first time. Very likely he did. So he reiterates again the command to follow God to this far-off land, and the promises that he was giving him of just all kinds of blessing. So look at it here in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Literally, you could translate that, and all families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. Genesis 12, 1 through 4. So there's the promise of land. There's a the promise of a great nation. God said, Your, your family is going to be so big that it's going to outnumber the stars in the heaven, the sands of the seashore. Now, this is like a huge promise because when he's 75 and his wife Sarah is 65, you just need to know they didn't have any kids. They're infertile. And so, when he changed his name to Abraham, father of a multitude, God is just saying, this is going to happen. Trust me. Believe me. So, great nation, great land, promise of a great name, great character, a man who would be famous, and great blessing, not just to Abraham, but to all the families of the world. Fast forward 25 years before Abraham and Sarah named their little baby boy laughter, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob has a ton of sons. Those 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 Leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, his grandson's name is changed by God, to Israel. So Abraham is the, father of the he is the father of the Jewish people. And what, what he's about to say, Paul is about to say is, not only is he the father of the Jews, and by the way, if you don't know this, the Muslims through Ishmael which was the son through Sarah's servant, Hagar, they see Abraham. So the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims all go back to father Abraham. But Paul's point here is, look, you've always seen him as the father of the Jews, of the Israelite nation of of your natural ancestor. He said, look, he's the spiritual father of everyone who has the faith of Abraham. That's where he's going here in this argument. And so, we read about this in the opening verses of chapter 4. Are you with me chapter 4 verse 1? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, if he was made right before God because of works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So in your Bible, do you see that in quotes? Do you see a little letter? Mine has a little letter A. You go to the bottom and you go, oh, that's a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified through his faith. All right? Now to the one who works wages, now there's this logic. There's this argument from scripture. He's, he's gone back to that. Now there's, there's this Uh, argument from just logic and the law of non-contradiction he says now to the one who works wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation so he's saying look if it was a gift it can't be a paycheck and if it was a paycheck it wasn't a gift it's one or the other both can't be the same thing the one thing can't be the same thing they exclude each other However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, verse 5, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's a gift, not a paycheck, he says. Then he pulls in the example of David, and he quotes from Psalm 32. David is the first great king. Saul was the first king. David was the first great king, and he's one of the ancestors of Jesus and of Abraham. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So the argument from scripture is first and foremost, hey guys, Let's just talk about Abraham. And what does the scripture say about Abraham? Real easy. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. It didn't say, and he worked really hard to keep all the commandments and it was credited to him as righteousness. It didn't say, and he was circumcised as a sign of the covenant and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's saying the scripture makes it clear. He was made right before a holy God because of his faith. And by the way, if it's a gift, it can't be a paycheck. God's not obligated to any of us. He wasn't obligated to Abraham because, by the way, he got the promise long before he was circumcised and long before he ever received and God's people ever received the law 430 years later. No, it was a gift. Hence, God wasn't obligated here. And this beautiful reference to Psalm 32 reminds us of the double counting that goes on in justification. So on the one hand, he doesn't count our sins against us. So our sins are forgiven. Our transgressions are removed. And what he does count, though, is Christ's righteousness is on us. Put, put in our account. So the debt we owe before God is covered through faith as we trust in Christ, the one who paid the penalty. And not only that, Christ doesn't just deal with our debt before God, but Christ loads our account with all of his eternal righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his moral beauty and character gets credit to our account. Here's the example. It's a little corny because it's never gonna happen, but you'll, you'll get it. So you're about to go bankrupt. You've tried everything you can. You've talked to all your friends and relatives, and there is nothing left but for you to file for bankruptcy. But as it would just happen, this week you meet up with, I know, Bill Gates. Go figure. (laughs) And he asks you a little bit about your story. and You tell him about your plight, and he has compassion for you. He says, man, you know what? I want to give you a second chance, and I'm going to make it right. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to heal all your debt. I'm, I'm going to just wipe it out. And you're going, oh, my word. This is awesome. But he goes one step far, farther, and he says, you know, not only that, I'm going to give you a major leg up here as you move forward in your life. You know what? My wife and I, we're well healed. We're set. You probably know that. And uh, I'm just going to give you everything that I got, everything I got. That's the double counting of Christ whose riches far exceed Bill and Melinda's, far exceeded, and can address needs that money never will. In Christ's death on the cross and faith in his death on the cross, our debt is taken care of. And the double counting is God deposits all of Christ's righteousness into our account. Not because we've done it, because we're trusting in who Jesus is and what he's done so that when God sees us, the reason we can be acceptable before him because all of our faith is in Jesus and he sees Jesus and one day will make us like Jesus. We're not like Jesus perfectly now. Our faith is holy in Christ now. And so there's this double counting that he's talking about here in Psalm 32 and let us never forget the profound implications of being made right before God through faith in his promised son that our sins are no longer held against us. That as in never counted against us. Have we caught up with that? As the enemy would continue to accuse us of things that we've done in the past, With those accusations, with those memories, with those circumstances that bring it all back together, the worst things of our life, the worst days of our life, would we remember that because of Christ and what he did on the cross for me, never counted again, removed as far as the east is from the west so that we're freed from that guilt, we're freed from that shame, to move forward in life, to serve God and others. Praise Have you been set free? If you haven't been set free by Christ, then you haven't been set free in all the ways that you long for and that God intends. So there's the argument from Scripture here. Then he reviews in chapter 4, verses 9 through 17, the historical chronology of the promises. And circumcision and the law. And basically, we don't have time to read it, but here's his point. He's going to say this, and I already have. I've alluded to it. He's going to say, hey, guys, remember the history here. He gets the promise in chapter 12. He, He circumcises himself and his son Ishmael in chapter 17. Verse 24 says he was 99 when he was circumcised. It was the year before Isaac was to be born. So he believed and received the promises, and he was made right before God through faith that way preceded circumcision by 24 years. Oh, and by the way, the law doesn't come for 430 years later. It never was even given in Abraham's lifetime. The law is given to God's people when Moses goes up on Sinai, recorded in Acts in Exodus 20, 430 years later. So he was made right before circumcision. He was made right before the law was given. And that's why he's the father of us all, because it was through faith. And what was true for Abraham, he says to his friends in Rome, is true for us. And it's true for us today here in Madison, Wisconsin. And so... This is, this is huge because for them, the story of Abraham is fundamentally about, well, this is like our George Washington. This is where it, it all goes back to him. And it's even more than George Washington because he's, he, he is the biological heir of all, of all Jews. He's it. It starts with him. And so what what Paul is doing here as he reviews the history is he's reframing the history and retelling it as it was always meant to be understood, that Abraham is not just the father of the Jews, but he's the father, more importantly, of all those who would believe, Jews or non-Jews. And it's such good news that Paul will say, when he made the promise that I'd bless all the nations and all these nations and families would be blessed through you, that he actually was announcing the gospel that we think is a New Testament announcement. So look at what he says in Galatians 3, verses six through nine. So also Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember, it's faith. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham, not just Jews. Anybody who has faith? Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and me, By faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. How so? When it said, All the nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, how is that the gospel? Because all the nations would be blessed through this promised descendant that wasn't Isaac, and it wasn't Jacob, and it wasn't King David. But it was Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, the son of God, who came, the righteousness of God, to make things right between us and God and to one time in in future history to make all things right when he comes back. It's through Christ, it's through Christ. So he ends up in verses 18 through 25 by showing these characteristics of his faith. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Remember, he's 100 years old. Since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, Paul says, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so the characteristics of faith that justifies the object is God, his power to give life to the dead, to call things that aren't into being. And those reference two stories in Genesis chapter 22. He's called by God to sacrifice Isaac, the promised son, on an altar. And he doesn't flinch. And he goes right a three days journey to Mount Moriah, which most scholars believe is the very place of Jerusalem later on in biblical history and he ties up his son and he puts him on the altar and he's got his knife in his hand and he's ready to sacrifice his son and he and it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he believed that even if he killed him God would raise him up from the dead so was his faith he believed that that God could bring things that were dead back to life that he could bring things into existence from things that were not i.e. a child from his wife's barren womb he believed these things so the object of his faith was in the power of God and in his promise to do these things and because of his belief in God he had hope when humanly speaking there was no reason to be hopeful and so he trusted in God's word. But there's a huge surprise here. And if you're acquainted at all with the life of Abraham, it wasn't that long ago. Remember, we did that whole study on Abraham. Unexpected, we called it, the journey of faith. And when we went through Abraham's life, it was just like this. It was like these huge mountaintop experiences where he has these amazing uh, demonstrations of faith in God, like Genesis 22, when he's willing to sacrifice his own son. But then there's a whole bunch of face plants and we're going, what do you mean, Paul? Is this like your revisionist history on the patriarch and you just don't want to come to grips that he was very human and his faith actually was weak and he actually did waver? What are you saying? He didn't weaken in his faith. What are you saying he never wavered? Because it sure looks like he wavered when he said, God, let me help you out here, Genesis 15. It's been a while since you made the promise. You know, we're not getting any younger here. And so I got an idea. Why don't we just call my servant eliezer the promised son seemed like he was wavering there in his faith or how about a few years later when sarah goes man maybe it's me abraham maybe the problem here is me and i'm and if it is i'm never going to give you this promised son and so why don't you take my servant hagar and she'll be like the surrogate here who will give us the offspring of promise and abraham doesn't say, Sarah, come on now. we got to just take God at his word. He's made it clear. It's going to come from us. No, he says, all right, sweetheart, if that's what you think. That didn't, that, like, that didn't seem like he wasn't wavering. It seemed like he just like big time did a face plant. So what is going on here? Is Paul just being a revisionist here in the history? Are we learning something profound about the nature of faith? And I think it's that that ought to encourage us hugely. That if faith is only as good as its object, which is true, so you didn't even think about it, but you exercised faith when you came in and sat down, right where you're sitting. So, if if that chair, though, wasn't one of these nice metal chairs, if we had just kind of moved in this dilapidated wood chair that actually was in pieces this week and our ministers of maintenance said, hey, man, I got a quick fix for this. And they got out the scotch tape and they wrapped all the joints and you go, I-, I got faith that this this chair will hold me because I always come in here and I sit down, hey, your faith is only as good as the integrity of that chair. Faith is only as good as the object. And if it's held together by scotch tape and nothing more, I guarantee you, you know what's going to happen. You're going to be on the floor. And so here's the deal. If faith is only as good as its object, and it's really important for us to know, it's not how strong our faith is. It's in whom and in what our faith is. And so from a human perspective, he wavered. He had a lot of weak faith. But the scripture is saying through the ebbs and flows of his journey, his faith was always trusting the word of God, that word of promise. And so this is to encourage us because sometimes we're duped into thinking, especially as the world evaluates faith, that faith is, is all about how earnestly we're believing something, and if somebody believes something because they believe it earnestly, that's legit. Well, it's, it's legit earnestness, but it doesn't mean that's faith. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is rooted in the history of God's revelation and of his son entering history, living that perfect life, dying the substitutionary death on the cross, rising from the dead to make it clear he is who he said he is and did what he said he was going to do. And when we have even just a little bit of faith in Christ alone, that's sufficient. And at the end of the day, with the ebbs and flows in his life, he ended where he began, taking God at his word, obeying his commands and believing his promises. Oh, that that would encourage us as we find ourselves maybe looking back over this week going, oh man, there's a lot of weakness. There's a lot of wavering. Your faith in Christ no matter where you are in your life, if it's fully in Christ, then you have everything you need to carry the ups and downs of life in your life's journey. So Paul's saying, look, if the object of your faith is in yourself, your good works, your ability to keep the commands, you're in trouble. But if it's in Jesus, in him alone, the ultimate son of promise, then the blessings of God are yours through faith in Christ. And so, Here's what it demands from us. If we truly understand that being made right before God, being justified is a gift from God that is ours through faith in Christ alone, then these are the things that ought to be producing in our life, increasingly producing. Humility, a gracious inclusivity, a growing boldness in the power of God and his word, and then growing praise for God. And, and that's how I just want to end. Is this teaching of being saved by God's grace through faith alone, is it cultivating humility in my life in heart? Or am I somehow confusing the good things I'm doing for God as the things that actually make me right before God? Is there still this this air of spiritual pride and confidence in the things that I'm doing for God misunderstanding it's always been about God it's always been a gift from him it's always going to be about his grace in my life humility is the opposite of a boastful pride and if my life and your life is marked with humility then there's this gracious inclusivity and there's the rejection of elitism and there's a rejection of prejudice and there's a rejection of racism and any thought of it that I and my people and my tribe and my political persuasion and party is superior than other people so that I can label them, so that I can scapegoat them, so that I can stereotype them. And whether it's rooted in fear, actually the ultimate root of all that kind of feelings and arrogance is pride. And it's a front to God who made us all in his image. And we got to be really careful of using these labels like those people and them and blacks and whites and the rich and the poor and those liberals and those conservatives and on and on it goes. So let me just give you a, a, an example. So you heard about the caravan. I guess if you're breathing, you've heard about the caravan. All right, so ha- have you caught the language invaders? Wow. Wow. Okay, I guess my parents invaded America in 52. When did your family invade? You see, see what I'm saying? When we put a label on it, it dehumanizes people. Now, I, look, that's a complex issue. So this is not about where you stand on the issue. This is about where you stand and how we see people created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. The gospel has implications in how we live humbly before people, not with self-righteous pride that we've got it together. I'm better than you because I go to church and I got a list of don'ts. And you know what? People are tired of the don'ts because they see all the do's that we do about the don'ts that we say we don't do, right? So there's humility. There's an inclusivity that sees people as they truly are. Created the image of God. Loved by God. Christ died for the world. Huge. And then there's this boldness. I love 21. Oh, that our faith would grow more around this truth that Abraham was fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised. And and that was to bring life out of something that was dead. Do you believe that about your marriage? That God has the power to bring that to life, about that broken relationship with your mom, your sister, your brother, your child. That God has the power to bring dead things to life. Do you believe in the promise of his word to bring life to people whose hearts are dead to God? Don't want anything to do with God. That he could bring things into existence that aren't. A boldness because we have a big view of God and our faith is fully in God and our praise is in him and him alone and no one else. And so as we end our service, I just want us to catch up with what we may have known since we did the catechism way back as a child, that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we can have that clear as clear can be in our head. But if humility and a gracious inclusivity, and a growing confidence and boldness in God and in his word, with lives that are always lived to his glory, then there is a gap here between what we know and what we really believe in our heart of hearts. Let's pray. And so, Father God, may you have mercy on us as we find that we can boast about the good things that you've called us to do, thinking somehow that we're better than others and you owe us and moving it out of the construct of grace. Oh, Lord, help us to get this so that we can live this, so that others would believe that they actually could be freed from all the things that they regret for all the things that they just are pushing out of their lives so they don't even think about those horrible things, to be forgiven, to be covered, to have those things never counted against them, to receive your blessing, Lord, through Christ that was meant for all people, all that we would get it so that we would live it so that they would get it, Lord. And as long as we Assemble together at this place called Door Creek. May you and you alone always get the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.